brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. This week, we look at new evidence for ancient civilizations that are off the Bimini coast. We've talked a little bit about this in the past with Dr. Greg Little, who is the guest today, and also with Daryl Miklos, who is the host of Cooper's Treasure. We're waiting to hear back from him. But today, we are going to hear evidence of significant dives off the Bimini uh, Islands uh, that are discovery points for not only ruins, but possible evidence of a seafaring uh, civilization, possibly Atlantis, but we're just not sure exactly who they are until, until we can make significant surveys. This is part of a book called uh, Denificent Origins that uh, Greg co-wrote with Andrew Collins, and it is our featured program today. Later, our own Jin Deo takes us to Japan and a look at the Dogon figurines. These are quite unusual. Some people think it's a race of robots because they're all wearing heavy uh, clothing, uh, helmets, and they look like they're automatrons. All this in the news today on Earth Ancients. Saturday, October 5th, 2019, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. 
Hey, hey, how you doing? This is Cliff, your host. Welcome to Earth Ancients. I hope you're doing well. This is the uh, <laughs> Egyptian version of the program. I am in Egypt. This is a pre-recorded show. Lots to talk about. We have an amazing guest today in Dr. Greg Little, Dr. Gregory Little. He opens the show with a discussion on his dives with uh, the Edgar Casey Foundation, A.R.E., his wife and a team of uh, surveyors and what they discovered. I've posted most of that gallery uh, this week, which will allow you to see what he's talking about. And you'll need to sc- sc- uh, scroll down on the Facebook page, Facebook uh, Earth Ancients. And uh, oh, and by the way, if you're not into uh, Facebook, go to earthancients.com, go to Facebook feed. And these photographs are exactly what he's describing, buildings in the Bimini area and uh, off the coast of Bimini, and you see foundations. And, you know, you have to wonder, we've had um, Daryl Miklos on, who's going to dive in November, if he will see similar or different things. And Greg's not familiar with uh, with Daryl Miklos's diving uh, program and, and uh, Cooper's Treasure, so... It'll be interesting to compare notes uh, when uh, Greg, uh, excuse me, when Daryl comes back. So, anyhow, that's today's show. We'll have the, our regular contributors, Jin Deo, uh, our science editor, Bruce Fenton. Uh, but this is pre recorded and it is, uh, I'm in Egypt right now <laughs> recording that, creating shows from the recordings, from the interviews, from the interpretations that we get uh, from that tour. So this is going to be a little bit of an abbreviated uh, uh, introduction to this week's program. I want to remind you that uh, Facebook has a tremendous amount of data on it, uh, not only uh, from the contributors to the interviews, but uh, also Jen and Bruce and myself and others post uh, articles, information, news releases, scientific papers from uh, a variety of sources, and it's really a great way to stay abreast on some of the latest news, uh, of course, following along and following up on the interviewees and what their content is, what they're all about, uh, and just staying up to date on on the discoveries of about our, of our past. So uh, you need to go to Facebook and go to Earth Ancients, go to the group page, and that's where you'll find all this great information. To destiny. Now here's your host, Cliff Dunning. Yes, we've done it. We have launched Destiny. Um, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, it should be on your feed. If you don't find it on your feed, punch in Destiny. Uh, the logo has a, a photo of uh, a background photo of Hubble. It's called Destiny. It shouldn't be too hard to find. And uh, this is going to be the first of many, many regular programs. Really excited to have the cannabis 
contribution with uh, Dr. Pepper Hernandez. So check that out and see what you think. I know you're going to like it because I can't cover uh, everything about the past on Earth Ancients. Uh, There's a lot of material that I am uh, going to post on and record and discuss on Destiny. And what Destiny is, is a program about our future. And when I say that, that means that uh, what do we look like as an evolved species in 100, 500, 1,000 years from now? How can we prepare? How can we look to the future? How are we evolving? And what are the techniques? What are the medicines, the uh, supplements that we use along with meditation and these ancient techniques that have come down through the ages to prepare for the future? And rather than letting things happen to us, we prepare ourselves, body, mind, and spirit, to take on the future, to prepare for it, and to become the future Homo sapien, uh, future man, Homo sapien, sapien, whatever. You know, maybe it doesn't go to sapien anymore, it goes to something else. Um, so, anyhow, I hope you'll check that out and, and do let me know what you think of destiny. Okay, here is today's program. Enjoy. Checking with Jen Dale. Jen covers the world, giving us information, providing us with details of the ancient past and what we know, what we don't know. We're going to go to Japan this week and take out uh, a close look at some small figurines uh, known as dogus. They, I have always thought they were unique simply because some of them look like robots. But they are very sophisticated, aren't they, Jen? They really are. They are. Um, they have the most diversity in any of the figurines that I've actually looked at. Which, I mean, not that I've looked at all the figurines in the world, but these are yeah. these are really diverse. Even just what they're made of, how they're what they're depicting, how they're decorated, um, and they are prolific. There are over eighteen thousand dogu figurines that have been unearthed. Yeah, and, and and they're like what from ten thousand years ago. This yeah, is well, really old. as old as ten thousand and as early as twenty three hundred years old. So yeah. I mean that's 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 a long range of making these figurines for sure. Yeah. Um. So the way that um they're described by artists and locals is that they're half earth spirit and that somewhere between animal and human is how they were devised mm-hmm. and. Uh, Everything that I kept reading about these was really interesting. Artists, interesting artists from all over Japan are apparently very drawn to them because they say that they um, that the the little figurines engage them. And uh, <laughs> I know I thought that that was really interesting. And this article kind of speaks to that as well. But uh, probably the biggest thing for me when I was when I was looking at these is that the majority of them are hollow. And they're perfectly balanced. So that speaks a great deal to what these artists were doing when they were making them. Mm-hmm. Um, kind what do we of, know about the people, Jen? What do we know about the, 
the culture that would would create something like this? Did they have uh, do we have uh, uh, burials where they have armaments and they have uh, clothing like these guys have on? No, nothing like that. Which is very strange too, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So these people, the Jaman, were from the archipelago of Japan. And so this particular area during the Neolithic supported higher population densities um, from that particular age than other cultures all around the world. So it means that there were a lot of people in that area. And within that, um, they say that that, that particular area um, had different groups of people and different societies that were living within there. That's why you see so much range and diversity within these statues and artists, people, you know, and maybe even that they were making these renderings on things that they had seen somewhere else or something that they encountered. Um, but I mean, a lot of people feel like, like a lot of them are like a race of robots because they look mechanical. They have big eyes. They're, they're uh, almost uh, automatons in a way. Yeah, you're Ar- talking artificial humans. You're yeah. talking about the most famous one, which they refer to as the Google-eyed, um, with those yeah, big old exactly. eyes with the slits. Do you know what those yeah. look like to me? Those look like the um, glasses that Inuit wear when they travel in, um, you know, blizzard whiteout oh, conditions. Right. To protect from the uh, uh, blinding. Snow. Yeah, and we've seen those in the archaeological record made out of ivory. Yeah. So Weird. it's almost like these are protective suits of some sort, or I don't know. I, I just saw them, and I also reminded me of you because of the the Mayan um, figurines that you post. So I've always thought that these were the most anomalous uh, sculptures ever discovered, simply because they don't look human. Yeah, they, there's nothing human about them. They, they have uh, heavy armaments. It looks like uh, 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 Clothing to protect whoever is inside mm-hmm. uh, from the environment, you know. So, you know, when people say they look like spacesuits, I have to agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that the other big thing about these is that these little guys have traveled. They find these figurines They and prehistorically they found these in excavations in Mexico, in Turkey and Ecuador. So you're kidding me. Mexico? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. They said that they okay. found these in Mexico. Um, wow. And and this is another thing that we know. We know that uh, the Jaman people, we know that they made it. They were good mariners, apparently, as well, because we see they have an, uh, a genetic footprint that we see in Ecuador. So we know that mm. at some point prehistorically, they somehow made their way there. So it's not a super surprise if we have all of these people living in off of an archipelago. I mean, they probably figured out how to live off of the ocean and they probably have some level of high knowledge about how to traverse the ocean. So, yeah. Or there will be documents that show up that says that they uh, traveled the uh, outer atmosphere and were uh <laughs> space travelers <laughs> who knows i'm laughing but who knows you who know? knows the know. sky's the limit jen this is a great one uh, i'm going to put this up on facebook it'll automatically populate to earth ancients facebook page and um this is a great start for the, those of you listening uh do a search on your own you'll see literally thousands of these figurines that are uh, in different shapes and sizes, but they're very detailed, very ornate, and uh, they even have reproductions that you can buy, which I thought was kind of fun. So, Jen, thank you, and we will talk to you next time. See you, Cliff.
couple boys I've known and I've known some. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Coming to you live from around the world, it's Earth Ancient News. Time to check in with Bruce Fenton. Bruce covers the planet uh, and gives us information on the latest details about the ancient past, present, and possibly future information. Hey, Bruce. How are you? Hi, Cliff. I'm really good. Yeah, I've been um, delving into all sorts of mysteries. Yeah, always keeps me keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, this uh, article we're talking about today is in your neck of the woods. It, it mm-hmm. basically says that uh, in northern France, they've uh, discovered inhabitants, uh, artifacts that are uh, six... Uh, 6,500 years old, which is, uh, sorry, I guess, older than a, what it was, huh? 650,000, sorry, just oh, to correct Oh, excuse me, 650,000, yeah. yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was well older. Yeah, 500,000 years ago. I mean, was the they believed was the first, you know, incursion into France until this discovery. And this has actually come about in a kind of an interesting way. You know, this wasn't, um, you know, out in some cave somewhere or, or whatever. You know, what actually happened is the discovery was made in the gardens of a housing estate, which is quite, in a, in a way, is quite a weird part of the story. Guardian you know? and a housing estate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is true. So, in a place called Abbeville, obviously um, in France. Uh, this is along the River Somme, which some people may know. You know, in terms of where we're talking about, roughly, you know, we're talking that this is you know, on the banks of the Somme. So there's obviously a housing development. I assume some kind of work has been done. Uh, they've stumbled on these artifacts. You know, in a really an unlikely place. Um, turns out that there's a huge kind of catch of them they found more than 260 flint objects including five biface hand axes um, among other sort of you know stone implements um, and then this yeah so it's a kind of a rewriting of the the early history of france why is this kind of important i mean one of the one of the reasons would be from from, from my perspective is that uh, the the beginnings of Homo sapiens or large-brained hominins goes back to around about 780,000 years ago, and this is covered obviously in in my books, both you know the Inter-Africa theory and the Hybrid Humans book. I talk about this. That so potentially we may be looking at early Homo sapiens. You know these really. I guess when I say that, I mean we're talking about extremely early ones. You know these wouldn't look like us, but they would be on that genetic path to becoming us you know they would have the genes for the large brain all that stuff right? right so so these could be some of the the first homo sapien ancestors and arriving in europe very early you know so i mean to be in france 650,000 years ago is only just over 100,000 years after that lineage splits away from the older kind of homo erectus and um, possibly australopithecines and some of these really early hominins um, and that would make some sense because we think of we think of our species as being kind of uniquely inclined towards um, rapid expansions and and globe trotting, you know, the, um, obviously innovating tools and whatnot. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't shock me to think that that within a hundred thousand years that you know these early uh, direct ancestors might have made their way up into France. So I would like to see them obviously find bones. That's what we're yeah. missing on this one. Is of course is yeah, they're so. So far. what exactly did they find that uh, that they were able to date? Was it uh, cutting tools? Was it axe heads? What what was it? 
yeah, thanks to it being in these sand and gravel deposits near the river, they've they've been able to date the deposit level from which the objects were found. So okay. So he's going for a geological dating on on the site. Well, that's uh, and yeah. that, so this makes yeah basically they they've said it actually makes this what's called Moulin Kignon. Now I might get that slightly wrong. I'm not a French, native French speaker, but they, they said that makes it the oldest site in northwestern Europe uh, where these kind of biface stone tools have been found so far. Wow. Which is, is quite relevant um okay. and this discovery is a, it's a central position of the somme valley so just so if you want to kind of get an idea in their heads where this is um and it's okay. in terms of debates at the moment as to whether or not it's europe's oldest settlement uh, so I, I think that yeah it's gonna be important but i really like to see them find you know some bones because we again we may be seeing those very early um split towards homo sapiens if so that will be well, it's important for the kind of work I do. I'm saying that, you know, our lineage begins 780,000 years ago, and I would expect to find sites of interest, you know, after that time spread right across Eurasia. And so this mm-hmm. might be one of them. So we don't know if it's Neanderthal, uh, Denificen, uh, or another species, but uh, typically uh, hominins that are that old are uh, – fall into those those categories right well the thing is yeah when you, if you go back if you trace the because really denisovans and, and neanderthals are very close like you say cousins of ours right they're very closely related so if you take them back to when we were the same population that's around about seven hundred thousand years ago or so is this when we were yeah, starting pretty close to, right pretty close. yeah so this so this could well be an ancestor of all the free or it could be you know a little bit after well this is kind of after the split so it's going to be it's going to be very similar to the ancestors of all three groups, put it that way, because this okay. is not long after the split. So you, if you were to stand up, say, the ancestors of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us, living 650,000 years ago, they probably would look almost identical, you know, because these okay. are just beginning to branch away into separate populations in that kind of time. So so I don't know if we'll be able to tell for sure. Well, I suppose bones. if they get DNA, yeah, you need bones. And then you'd probably need DNA to, to really... Yeah. To really show for sure, and to be honest, at the moment, the oldest DNA ever recovered is 700,000 years old, and that was from a horse, right? So, <laughs> so we know that it can be done, but yeah. it's really near that edge of viable DNA, right? So it's me fingers crossed that they get bones and that the, that the bones have been kept cool, which is possible because yeah. of where it is. But again, there's been a lot of water flowing in that area, and would that have degraded bones away? So um, okay. we can only hope. All right, well, this will be posted on Facebook, uh, automatically uh, populated to earthancients.com under Facebook feed. Uh, this is a, an interesting bit of uh, our ancient past as uh, uh, in another hominin, potential uh, hominin uh, dating, and uh, as always, it's fascinating. Bruce, this is a good one, and uh, we will talk to you next time. Great, thank you very much. Take care. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So there's a, a new book out. We actually had uh, the author, uh, uh, one of the two authors with us uh, earlier in the year before the book was released. It's called uh, Denisovan Origins, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants of Ancient America. Andrew Collins was with us, uh, I believe, let's see, he was back in June. Uh, but the other author is Gregory Little. It's so rare that we get Greg on the program uh, and we want to talk about his contributions to this book. This is an important book for many, many reasons. Uh, as many of you listeners know, we are constantly on the lookout for early hominins around the world. But what's really fun about this book is it really concentrates on the early Americans, the early North Americans, uh, uh, which is South America, Central and North America, well, which is the current uh, United States. And we've had Greg on a couple of times, well, actually, I've had Greg on twice so far since 19, oh, excuse me, 2014, and uh, w- uh, Greg gives a really great look at the ancient past on this. So, Greg, hey, welcome to the program. Glad you could join us again for uh, part two, I should say. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I recall some details from the last two times, but <laughs> it's always great. You have a lot of listeners, too, and I've, I've heard from many of them over the years. Fantastic. Hey, well, listen, the first thing I, w- I want to mention, for those of you listening, Greg is the author of uh, Edgar Casey's Atlantis. And, of course, I think we had you on. I know we had you on for the Illustrated Encyclopedia of North American uh, Indian Mounds. Uh, and you've written some other books. You've been on the uh, National Geographic Channel, History Channel. But I want to ask you, are you familiar with Daryl Miklos from uh, the History Channel's uh, Cooper's Treasure and his work in the Bimini's? Uh, no, I'll just I'll say no. I've okay. heard it. I've heard it, but I'm not familiar with it at all. No. Well, uh, the reason I want to bring it up is I know you worked with uh, the Edgar Casey Foundation, A-R-E, which stands for Association for Research and Enlightenment. And did some dives off the Bimini Coast. Uh, we had um, we, we've we've seen some photographs of your side, uh, sounding sonar uh, images of what looks like pyramids with staircases. And but anyhow, my point is that uh, Daryl uh, made an initial dive off the Bimini Islands uh, following a, a, a map that uh, Gordon Cooper had when he was flying on the Gemini flight. And actually found what he thinks are foundations and roads. And he's going back later in November 
to do some diving, and he's going to clarify it. He's he has a production company that's going to be clarifying. You found some evidence in that area, didn't you, Greg? No, we found a lot of stuff in the Bimini area, and initially yeah. we were skeptics. I didn't believe anything was there. I believed what the skeptics had said, and the early geologists who – I use the word geologist uh, kind of uh, – <laughs> tentatively because the the main geologist had a bachelor's degree in biology and that was it and he was hired many years ago when the US geological service would hire people without without degrees in geology and then call them geologists but there's a lot there and about 5 miles off of Bimini uh toward Florida so it would be due west of Bimini there is a series of structures on the bottom uh, they are square and rectangular structures. They look like building foundations, and they are in a row of about a, about a mile and a half long. There are actually three rows of them, and there's over 50 of those, and they're really striking from the surface. When now, how you deep do, are they, Greg? How deep uh, they're at they're right at the 10,000 BC shoreline, which is amazing. They are at 100 to 110 feet. So okay, so you didn't dive and see them. You had to use No, we did. Sonar. We did. We oh, did. Oh, you dive. did dive. And oh, see yes, them. we did. And okay. it was uh we got my wife and I got to the deepest we've ever gone, which was 110 feet, which is oh, a little crazy. God. Yeah. Uh, I didn't and, know Laura was a diver too. Uh she actually got into diving because of all this. Uh yes, in fact, that was one of her very first dives. Uh, and I actually ran out of air down there. I never decompressed and uh, oh went God. to the surface because I use a lot of air when I'm scuba diving, and she didn't. Uh, but they are very impressive even on the bottom. And so what you see, like you will, you'll see one of these square and rectangular forms. They're sometimes covered with sand. There's growth in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have what look like fused building blocks along the sides, but they're all fused by coral. They are densely covered by coral. Mm -hmm. So you'll see one of these, and then you'll have roughly 100 feet of pure white sand bottom, and then you'll hit another one. Looks just the same. And then you'll have another 100, 150 feet of pure white sandy bottom, and then you'll hit another one of these structures and another. Are are they pyramids? Are they buildings? What are they? Well, they look like rectangular buildings. Uh, Most of them are 30 to 40 feet square or rectangular. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in rows and they are right. You can actually see the, the shoreline there. And that shoreline was identified as the 10,000 BC one by Florida State University's underwater archaeology department. 10,000 uh, BC meaning? Right that's... at the shoreline. And we, we speculate that those were actually. Uh, like supply and transfer buildings where materials that were being shipped by some maritime culture would be moved. They'd be stored there. And again, they were right on the the shoreline. So people often say, how come Bimini doesn't have a lot of structures on it? Well, first of all, uh, hurricanes come through and walls of water come over Bimini and just scrape everything off. That has Mm -hmm. happened. Actually, that happened a year after we started research, and it literally pushed a three-story concrete and steel motel off the side of the shore and into the ocean, and you couldn't tell that building had ever been there right after the storm. It was just beat up pretty good, I guess. 
So in 10,000 BC, we know the oceans were a lot lower. And actually then they were about 115 to 120 feet lower. Everybody will talk about during the Ice Age, it was 300 to maybe maybe to 400 feet lower. But that was the height of the Ice Age, roughly 20,000 to 17,000 B.C. And then the oceans started rising pretty quickly, at least in geological terms. And by 10,000 B.C., it was at roughly 115 feet okay. lower than today. So you're not surprised that uh, this Daryl Miklos has found no. uh, foundations and roads and some what looks like an observatory. He's at 300 feet. Yeah, he's, that he's would at, be. Yeah, that would go back to the height of uh, Atlantis, which would be roughly 17 to 20,000 years ago. He's at that. He's at that level. So you think he's found an outpost or maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We have film. We have about 30 hours of film mm-hmm. taken at 300 to 500 feet off Bimini. Uh, and I have sat and watched that over and over. What and year, what, Greg? So I'm sorry. What oh, year? not bad. That's like five years ago. Oh, it's five years ago. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's just five years ago. And it's very high definition, full color. Uh, in some of it, you can see uh, some divers that were using mixed gases that went down to almost 300 feet. Uh, and okay. it's some of it's impressive, but everything is covered by coral. And in the Bahamas, it is against the law to dig through coral without a permit, and they don't give permits for that. Wow. And that's one of the things that really kind of ground us to a halt. Uh, they stopped issuing permits for like a four-year period, and it was only three years ago when they started reissuing them. Okay. And it, it was done because of treasure hunters that were down there that had a permit from the Bahamas for treasure hunting, and they claimed that they found nothing, and they didn't recheck in with the Bahamas. They just went straight back to the United States. And the Bahamas were convinced that they had actually found gold and silver or so on and just didn't want to report it because the Bahamas claims a share of it with a permit. Mm. But, Gray, would you say what you discovered is your belief as a, a, as a city or is it, a, is, it a, is it an encampment or something? That's the wrong term for it. But a series of buildings that were placed there from a very early civilization uh, that we don't know. It, or are you actually saying this is your belief? This is uh, uh, this is part of Atlantis. Well, it was part of an unknown maritime culture that was down there and operating up until probably 4000 B.C. And I would call it a port. It looks like it was a port where ships would pull up and move things back and forth. Now, what else is there? I don't know. I will add this. And I I don't know if we've ever talked about this. There's a structure. Really, it's a collapsed temple. There is definitely a collapsed temple about 30 miles south of Bimini. It is in 15 feet of water. It would have been at a very high point. It is made out of polished schist. And I'll spell that, S-C-H-I-S-T. Schist is a type of stone that, like the Oracle of Delphi everybody's heard about. Well, the Oracle of Delphi in Greece was made out of schist stone. Mm-hmm. So there are all these polished beams and flat surfaces that are made that are solid stone. There are many fluted marble columns there. And again, that's about 30 miles south of Bimini in a very unusual spot at a high point where the tidal flow rushes back and forth every day. 
Mm-hmm. And there's about a one and a half hour period when you can get on that. But even the experienced Bahamians that we had go with us each time. And these guys are really great swimmers. They could not stay on this site, even scuba diving on the bottom mm-hmm. when the tidal flow was moving. So it just washes the sand back and forth and it didn't allow much coral to grow on it. Is it, is it on an atoll or some kind of what, what, uh, how does it get up so high? It's really on a small island. Oh, a small it's next, island. Well, okay. it's next to a small island, but mm-hmm. it is beneath the surface. But it's a high point. When you swim only 50 to 100 feet in either direction, east or west, the bottom starts deepening dramatically. Okay. So it was like on a really high point when the oceans were lower. But it's very clearly that it was some sort of a temple structure. Now, whether it was – it's about the size of a World War II aircraft carrier, by the way. That's it's not r- small at all. No, it's roughly fi- – it's like a 500-foot-long oblong-shaped blob. It's kind of like it was sitting there and some big wave came over it and hit it and knocked it all in one direction. Mm. So it's laying there in ruins. It has been looked at by a few others, and this only a few people know this. I think I've only ever said this once publicly, too. Uh, a representative from Microsoft Corporation went down and looked at it because he said that their archaeological foundation was at one time interested in rebuilding this thing. Really? So- Yes, it's a long-involved story. Uh, actually, Microsoft has – their foundation has sponsored a tremendous amount of archaeological work. Now, wow. when, he was, when he was talking to me about this, I told him repeatedly, this thing has been blasted so hard by something uh, that – and you can clearly tell that it was a building of some kind, but it just – it wasn't reasonable to try to rebuild it and not in place. He said he they were thinking about rebuilding it in in situ in its actual site. And I said, this thing's under 15 feet of water. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but we could go a half mile out and build some sort of like a dike or a seawall around it. And I said, yeah, you can if you're prepared to spend all of Microsoft's money. <laughs> yeah, especially and if it's five, said, uh, 500 yards or whatever the hell it is. Yes, it is. I mean, it's just unreal. But he did look at it. I suggested that they remove it and maybe rebuild it on Bimini if that's something they really wanted to do. Uh, so they do. They did actually get a salvage claim on this formation, which we call Brown's Ruins. And it's named after the Browns Ruins. Yes. And if you look it up online, you can see bits and pieces about it. Andrew uh, has talked about it, and it's in his recent book on Atlantis and the Caribbean. Uh, The number of pictures that are out there, though, are scarce because the Bahamas, when we informed them about it, they told us not to give out the precise location to anyone. Yeah. it is an archaeological site, and so now it's restricted. Greg, uh, why don't we hear more about this? Why? why uh, I mean, this is a significant find, especially if it's a, if it's a man-made uh, structure. Oh, it's, man, it's man-made. There's no yeah. doubt it's man-made. I mean, what, I mean, this this would shift. I mean, this is a, this is what's so much fun talking about talking to you because not only is there a lot of repression about our ancient past, but these kind of discoveries are just not brought forward to the public at all it's like it's almost like they're they're suppressed in a way 
Well, in this case, it got complicated by the Bahamas pulling all of the archaeological and geological permits. Uh, and it w- it's because the place has a lot of treasure hunters. Almost everybody going there is looking for gold. So their concern uh, initially was we don't want people going down there and removing stuff. So don't tell anybody where this is. Oh, okay. we, were, we were allowed to go down and we're allowed to go back and film and photograph. But they didn't want us to take any more samples. We actually took several samples from it, and we sent them in uh, to actually major American universities that geology departments and the chairman of the geology departments are the ones that told us this is the same material used in Greece. Uh, Narrowed down exactly where or precisely two places where this schist could have come from. One place is in Greece, and the other, strangely enough, is in Norway, if you can imagine. So they, they actually uh, imported the... the uh, that the, stuff came from there, yeah. Wow. It, either Greece or Norway, and okay. which it is, I suppose they'd have to go and look. And they actually, they did want to go with us and look, but then the Bahamas pulled all the permits. And the they had a moratorium for about four years uh, where they were not issuing any, and they changed all the archaeological and salvage laws in the Bahamas during that period. Mm-hmm. I hate saying this. Um, I wound up talking with a uh, secretary of the Supreme Court of the Bahamas, mm-hmm. and she thoroughly understood the issue that we had and said that they would assist us if we ask for it, but they said they can't control the corruption uh, that would have been involved. And I tell in one of our early books about our trips there about going through customs and them asking for bribes and wanting money and confiscating things if you didn't give them money. Really? Uh, so things that, are not good there. Well, it, it, it wasn't in this case. It's not as bad now, actually, as it was when we were doing it, because they didn't have any casinos there when we started. And the the resort of Atlantis wasn't at uh, Nassau at the time. And Bimini now has a very large resort and a casino. So there's a lot more movement in and out. and There's a lot more money in the islands than there used to be. Okay. Uh, but back then, when you took a boat in, for example, your own boat, you would go to the customs building, and there was a big jar there. I've got pictures of this. There's a big jar there right next to the customs officer, and the jar has a sign on it that says TIPS, T-I-P-S. <laughs> and so you pay a fee to take a boat in, and it's based upon how big your boat is and what it's worth. Uh-huh. Uh, you have to check in with any guns or ammunition you have. Uh, and the tip that you leave, which goes directly to them, would determine whether or not they were going to go aboard your ship and count everything uh, and make sure that uh, everything you told them was correct. And if they were going to go aboard your boat, they could tell you, you can't come on land until we get out there. And that could be five or six days before they'd make it. So that was one thing. We had another one where we flew in and we had our cameras. Uh, we're not talking about big cameras, just, you know, home little little uh, little video cameras. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, those are worth too much. You need to pay uh, a, an import tax on it. 
And I said, no, we're going to take them back with us. And they're not professional cameras. And he said, well, no, we're going to confiscate them then. And I said, well, I'll just call the I call our charter on a cell phone and told him to come back and pick us up. We'd go in somewhere else in the Bahamas then. And basically, I called the bluff, and he said, all right, all right, go on. And he just let us pass then with the stuff. Oh, boy, things are tough. This is what There's a lot of stories. Yeah. One with the National Geographic. This was amazing. I had set up a trip from Nassau to Andros and had a private charter, which you have to use a Bahamian charter between the islands of the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. We got in the plane. I usually flew as co-pilot because I have a pilot's license. So I sat in the front and the guy, we were exactly halfway over with a crew from the National Geographic in the back. And he said, uh, well, I can't do it for what you paid. And I said, what? And he said, you only paid $400 for this trip. I can't do it for that. I'm going to turn around unless I get more. Oh, my God. And, and literally this happened. I put this in the book and I said, well, how much do you want? And he said, 500 And so I said, and I pulled a $100 bill out and I said, that's it. That's what I've got. And of course, that wasn't the truth. But I told him that. And he grabbed it and he said, OK. <laughs> Boy. So, yeah, that. That used to happen all the time. I can't tell you it still happens now. I think things yeah. have changed a bit. Yeah. But oh, and the National Geographic had a local official come up and stop them before they got on a plane mm-hmm. and insisted that they pay some sort of a fee uh, or he would call in the police. Yeah. Uh, I, I told him to ignore him and let's get on this plane. It was a, it was a charter plane. We didn't just flew out. Yeah. But that kind of stuff happens a lot. Wow. So you won't be surprised uh, if this uh, discovery that uh, Daryl Miklos made uh, comes to fruition and it's on it's probably going to be on TV. You may even recognize whatever they find uh, in this discovery. But uh, uh, it looks like you've known about this for for, uh, quite a while. And there's others. I think you mentioned when we talked before, there's others that have made dives in, in a certain area of Bimini and have reported what they thought were buildings and so forth and so on. So this is this Bimini area is is quite a uh, interesting location. And according to you, it was a harbor city. Is that what you're I saying? I believe it. Yes, I believe it was a harbor or a port. Uh, it may not. Bimini may have just been a transfer port. One um, among others. There's another one very similar at Andros Island, which is roughly 100 miles away. And then Kay Sal, which is closer to Cuba, which is the mm-hmm. southernmost of all the Bahama Islands. It has another identical structure like that. Kay Sal was definitely a port, too. And we found anchors anchors at Kay Sal. And when I say mm-hmm. anchors, I mean stone anchors like you'd see. If you look up Phoenician anchors, yeah. you'll see pictures of those. And we found a lot of those in Bimini and at Andros and at Kay Sal. So, so as we conclude on that this little side note here, uh, what would you say the age of that place is? Is it like 12,000, 10,000 uh, uh, years old simply because it's underwater and we know the, the uh, water levels rose following uh, the melting of the ice caps? Well, the, stru- the 50 or so structures I talked about in the line five miles off Bahamas, five, uh, off, off of Bimini, have to be at least 10,000 years old, if not more. Okay. When you get to the Bimini Road, it's actually been uh, carbon dated, which people say you can't carbon date rock. That is true, except you can carbon date limestone rock, particularly beach rock. Okay. So. The beach rock at the Bimini Road has been carbon dated numerous times, uh, and it probably goes back to about 
4000 BC or so. Mm -hmm. We also carbon dated quite a few of the stone anchors. We did those with both the History Channel and with National Geographic, and those all turned out to be roughly A.D. 200 to 400 B.C., which wow. puts it in the time frame of the Phoenicians, which, again, no one was supposed to be there at that mm -hmm. time. Mainstream yeah. archaeology says there was nobody there until at least A.D. 500, and yeah. that's, that's absurd. Now, this is interesting. This is kind of a, a prelude to uh, our discussing your portion. Your portion of this book, Denificent Origins, has to do with early people in the Americas. I think, uh, and, and this is a wonderful contribution that you make uh, in this book, Greg. Uh, I really I enjoyed uh, what, what I read in here. Let's talk about the general theory of what uh, archaeologists present to uh, people that live in the United States. Let's talk about Clovis first. What is the Clovis first theory, and why is it such a problem? Well, from roughly 1930 or so, really it was closer to 1937, till 1997. Mm -hmm. So from 1937 to 97, American archaeologists told us with absolute certainty that the very first people in the Americas, in either North or South America, mm -hmm. all came from Siberian Asia at around 10,000 BC or so, actually about 9,800 is the date they usually picked, but we'll say 10,000 BC. And at that time, the Ice Age was beginning to wane. It's like we talked about in the beginning. Uh, the, the sea levels were rising because ice was melting. So right. in 10,000 BC or so, there was an ice-free corridor, which is called Beringia. And because it goes across the Bering Straits between Siberian Russia and Alaska. Mm -hmm. So the idea was these hordes of Siberian nomads came across and they came into North America that way. They carried with them these large, very unique stone points. Mm -hmm. And these stone points were large. They were at the end of, a, of spears. They were, they were fluted points. And a flute is actually a facing or a channel that is put on both Let sides. Let me interrupt you for a minute. When you say point, you're talking about arrowheads, correct? Yes, arrowheads. yes, but I'm talking about a spearhead now. We're talking about something spearhead. that yeah, would bigger. be large, yeah. maybe 10 to 12 inches long uh, at the end of a wooden spear. So these were made deliberately to kill things like mastodons, woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, mm -hmm. uh, giant tree sloth, those kind of things, because at okay. that time, North America had horses, camels, uh, and woolly mammoths. There were thousands and thousands of them. When I say thousands, I should probably just say millions, and they were very dangerous animals. So these mm -hmm. points were first discovered at a place called Clovis, New Mexico, and that's when they right. became known as Clovis points. They were found associated in the ribs of a slaughtered mammoth. Right. And so 1937, they accepted that. They were then carbon dated shortly thereafter, and then they started being found all over the Americas. So archaeologists became certain that the very first people in the Americas were the Clovis people, or the people of that culture that made those points, and that they inhabited all the Americas. North America was first, and eventually they just spread everywhere 
some of them ran to South America and reached Tierra del Fuego by about uh, 8,000 BC or and this so. This is the, pre- the prevailing theory of migration into the United, current United States, uh, Central America, and yep. South America, which until is, until right. 1997. In 1997, right. they because of a site in South America called Monte Verde, they decided that well, we're wrong. Uh, probably they were people were here first, uh, maybe two to three thousand years before Clovis. So they went mm-hmm. back to 12 to 13,000 BC. And so at that point, many archaeologists who really didn't believe in Clovis first anyway, but they were driven out of the uh, the profession if they said they didn't believe in Clovis first. They went what was back. The, what's, the, what's the general time frame when they were getting in trouble for questioning Clovis first? Anything, like- anything before 1997. 1997. Okay, fairly recently. Let's yeah, talk that- a little bit about your work and what 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 you have uh, written about, which is something that I don't understand, but I want you to explain it. The the information that is discovered in my, myocardial uh, DNA. DNA shows that a good percentage of what we consider Native Americans came from Europe, uh, and this is big news. And tell us why. Well, let me start with the word Europe, because <laughs> as yeah. soon as you say Europe, the yeah. skeptics say, aha, you're saying whites were here first. And that's not the truth. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a time frame, 30, 40,000. In, in South America's case, the first people were in South America perhaps as long ago as 300,000 years. And I am not making that up. Is this a modern Homo sapiens sapien? No, it would not be. That's where these Denisovans come in and also Neanderthal. Modern hominin group. Yes, but they would have been either Neanderthal or Denisovans or Mm. some other group that we've never found yet. Okay. Uh, And we know that South America was inhabited several times before anybody went into North America. Uh, the the mitochondrial DNA research actually has given us a much better picture of what happened. So to, to understand mitochondrial DNA, it is for a lot of people sort of mind-boggling and their minds kind of uh, uh, freeze over when they start hearing all of this. But might – so when you when you talk about ancient DNA research, there's two kinds of DNA. So there is what most people think of when you say DNA, and that's human DNA, which is called nuclear DNA, and that is in our cells. It's in the nucleus of our cells, and it is known as a double helix. There's three billion amino acid links in it. Uh, It's very fragile, but when you get your DNA sample, that's what they're sampling. But because it's so fragile and so big and so wound up into a tight ball, it's actually pretty hard to pull out of ancient remains, say ancient teeth or ancient bones. But there is another kind of DNA in us. Most people talk about it as maternal DNA because you only get it through your mother. And it is called mitochondrial DNA. And to understand that, you have to understand that in every cell in your body, There are hundreds to thousands of these tiny little organelles. And when I say tiny, think of of a human cell being one one hundred thousandths of an inch in diameter. We're talking about incredibly small. And inside that incredibly small cell are hundreds to thousands of smaller 
cells, and these are they're called organelles, mm-hmm. and they are called the, they are known as the mitochondria. They are a type of vestigial bacteria, and what they do is they take sugar or glucose from the bloodstream and they convert it into a type of energy that we use. I'll tell you what it is. It's called ATP or adenotriphosphate, but that yeah. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So the mitochondria uh, are not, it's not really human DNA, but it's in all of our cells. And it is also, it was also in dinosaur cells, every kind of animal that exists, even in plants, plants have mitochondrial DNA. So they have to, they have mitochondria because their mitochondria uses what's called the the Krebs cycle and it converts sunlight into glucose and then into the plants type of energy that it needs. So anyway, now because these, the mitochondria in us are, take glucose and they convert it into usable energy, it's related to diabetes so years ago, in ni- around 1985, Emory University in, in Atlanta, Georgia, was given a contract by the National Institutes of Health to study diabetes and various types of genetic disorders in the Pima Indian tribe in the southwest of America and also in the Blackfoot tribe, which they are around the Great Lakes. Now, the, the diseases were believed to be genetic, of course, so they tested human DNA. They started extracting human DNA from living members of the Pima tribe, also some Navajos, and, of course, the Blackfoot tribe. And they also extracted their mitochondrial DNA. Now, they did the mitochondrial DNA to, use, to just take a look at it, but they didn't expect it to come out the way it did. They thought it would all look alike. So, again, they were trying to figure out what was causing certain diseases. The Pima tribe actually has the highest rate of obesity and diabetes of any tribe in the world or any group of people. Some of their kids, or some of their babies are actually born with type 2 diabetes, which is like incredible. It's unheard of. Yeah. So anyway, all right. So when they did this, they thought that all the mitochondrial DNA that they extracted from these Native Americans, and this is the first time anybody done this in the world, any any researchers, when they extracted it, they found four distinct variations of the mitochondria, which was shocking to them. They didn't they didn't they didn't think it would mutate. When you find four different types, mm-hmm. it's because they mutated. And because these were the first four types found, they called them haplogroup A, B, C, and D. The word haplogroup simply means distinguishable type. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. So archaeologists read this and got the idea that, oh, my God, hey, if we go to Siberian Asia, we'll pull mitochondrial DNA from the nomads there, and that'll prove that's where they came from if it's the same. So they did. A few years later, they published the results. They found haplogroups A, C, and D in Siberia. They didn't find B, but they immediately said, oh, my God, we've proven all of the Native Americans came from Siberia and Asia, just as we have long said. Now, they did eventually find haplogroup B 
mainly in Taiwan and parts of China. But since that is also Asia, they figured, well, they just walked up around. They they took that 2,000 mile <laughs> yeah. and they yeah. went across the Bering Straits, too. So that's it. Right. They yeah. thought that was it. Then all of a sudden, and this was in 1996, the researchers found something else. They found a fifth type. And it didn't match any of the then thousands of Native Americans and Siberian nomads where they'd they'd already tested their their mitochondrial DNA and they matched. They couldn't find a match. And in what I have said is a remarkable coincidence. They called it X, as in X, the unknown. Now, at that time, they hadn't tested other people. They'd only tested Siberians and they tested Native Americans. And they had never tested any other groups. But because other genetic researchers around the world got interested, they started testing re- uh, living people in these other countries. And the mm-hmm. first place they found X was in Britain. <laughs> and it's really? very, yeah, it's very heavily distributed uh, in the Orkney Islands, particularly. Right. So the archaeologists said, well, this this can't be. Native Americans don't have European DNA. And this is where the argument that all the that people are who claim that haplogroup X came in ancient times. They're all racist because they say it was white Europeans. Mm-hmm. So the the archaeologists said, well, what happened here, obviously, is that white women from Europe came over and mated with Native American men. Now, it I like has how they to make be, these stories up. Yeah, yeah. it has yeah. to be white women because all mitochondrial DNA is female. It all comes from the female. All of your mitochondria came from your mother. Hmm. Your version came from her. And it doesn't matter who you mate with or produce a child with. That child's going to have the DNA of its mother. So it's hmm. own, that's why it's maternal DNA. Right. So then they began testing ancient remains that had been pulled out of mounds in America. And they started doing the same thing in South America. And when they pulled out the ancient remains from mounds, sure enough, they found A, B, C, and D. But they also found haplogroup X, which totally ruined their idea that it was modern. They found it in remains going back thousands of years. It's been found in in Florida in remains that are 9,000 years old. So let me stop you right there. So we have a mix of people migrating from the Bering Strait and also people uh, migrating from the Mediterranean area. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, probably. Here, here's yeah. the thing. Uh, haplogroup X is one of only two of the mitochondrial DNAs that has no origin. All mm-hmm. of There's now over 40. I think it's exactly 42 major types of haplogroups they didn't know it when they first did it that's why they did a b c and d and they found x the unknown which was uh for us great coincidence because it's still unknown but now there's uh a the efg hijk lmnop and so on yeah. through the alphabet and um then there's sub numbers too so haplogroup X, there's two ver- two main variations of it. It is heavily distributed around the Mediterranean. Some of it is in the uh, in Europe, but it clearly appears to be Asian. So if you go back, let's say 30, 40,000 years ago, there were people migrating from Asia 
who then went east. I'm sorry, they would have gone west into uh, parts of Europe, Euro-Asia, then eventually into Europe. Andrew and I both believe they eventually evolved into what is known as the Salutrians. And the Salutrians also were big game hunters like Clovis. They made points almost identical to Clovis's. They suddenly disappeared, which means they quit making the points. That's all that means. And you quit making those big points when you can't use them for anything. If you have no more big game, you don't need those points. And we believe they, uh, the remnants of them migrated to like the Orkney Islands and to um, Britain. And then they eventually crossed over, much like the Vikings coming into Canada, which is where the oldest haplogroup X is found. Uh, and they slowly spread through mainly North America, with some of them getting into Central and South America. But they were the Clovis culture. But when they entered around 10,000 B.C. or so, there were already people here. And these people, like we say, were probably the Salutrians. They probably mm-hmm. carried some of this Denisovan DNA with them. We know mm-hmm. they carried the big game points, which is like Clovis points. And we believe that they were physically very large. They built mounds. There have been some skeletons of them found. Uh, Some of them turned out to be haplogroup X, and we believe that is the source of America's Clovis culture. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of a – and Andrew goes through all the groups. The Swiderians was a group before them. Uh, and as I even said in the my first chapter of the uh, my section of the book, Denise of Origins, I said that the European history is far more intricate and advanced from the Americas uh, because mm-hmm. we haven't been around that long in Europe. They've been looking at archaeology for a long time. We simply yeah. have. But South America clearly is where it all started. Let, let's talk about South America for a minute. And this is what's really fascinating. Uh, you and, and I think the South American archaeological community is much more on top of this. And there's something in your book that I thought was funny. Uh, you quote a in a Guatemalan museum, uh, you read a description of the people migrated. The first people of America arrived from South Pacific to South America 50,000 years ago. It's kind of like this is their norm. Why yeah. is it so hard for uh, North American uh, scientists in the United States to accept that there were people uh-huh. in Americas that long ago? Well, first of all, they didn't they, they didn't believe anybody could cross oceans. You know, they were incapable of making a boat 50,000 years ago. That's what they argue. However, okay. The, the South American archaeologists have had so much research showing what has happened there and dozens of sites that predate 50,000 years ago, several that go back to 300,000 years ago. Very strong research. Even some of it was done by the U.S. Geological Survey. Some of it was done by the most prestigious um, institutions in Europe. I mean, the most prestigious and North American archaeologists, according to the South American archaeologists, are racist, and they don't like the fact that South American archaeology has been dominated by women. And they say that North American archaeologists in particular want the prize that says we were first. 
And I, they say that we hang on to it like it's a prize. No, no, we were first, you were second. Yet South America has the first mounds. They were built down there 5,000 years before they were built in North America. Pottery was everywhere in South and Central America, everywhere, before it ever appeared in North America. Yeah. There, are, there are so many other things. I mean, South America was clearly first, but this, yeah. the South American archaeologists simply say it is a type of cultural racism from the North American archaeologists. North Expl- American archaeologists. Explain the, what's the racist part, the part that it's not the, what we find uh, in the DNA and so forth is not Caucasian, uh, that it's uh, different uh, types of, of uh, uh, races, and that's what the problem is? Well – there's, there's, you're really asking two questions. One is, um, I, I will say that after the haplogroup X was proposed as coming from Europe, I, I'm usually careful to say it comes from what we today call Europe, but before that, it came from Asia. Um, uh, but there were like two. There was a novel that was written by some white supremacist after that came out where he suggested that uh, haplogroup X were white Europeans and they're the ones oh, that came to okay. the Americas. And archaeologists la- just latch onto that and say, ah, this is all white supremacist stuff. And it's unfortunate that, that that's the case. But even today, skeptics say, if you say anything about haplogroup X, they immediately say, oh, you're a white supremacist. You're saying they were whites. And no, they're I the ones you. saying that they're yeah. white, not us. We don't know you. what they were. Nobody knows what color the Salutrians were, if yeah. there were any color. We don't know what their race is. The only thing we know is their their origin, their first origin was probably somewhere in Asia. That's it. I, beyond that, we don't know. I mean, what race would you call the Neanderthals? Yeah. You yeah, know, it's exactly. Like, what are they're they? They're just they're just a branch of the human genome. I mean, the human race. We don't know what they are. They're just they there are no race. Yeah. yeah so racism know. has become a real <laughs> issue. South Americans. Uh, all right. North American archaeology is dominated by white men. That's the truth. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not I'm not I'm a white man. I'm not against white men, per se. But North yeah. American archaeology is dominated by older white men. South American archaeology is dominated by Hispanic women. That is the truth. Most of these mm. articles come from Hispanic women, although they use the they use the same dating labs for carbon dating. They you they have used the U.S. Geological Survey. The U.S. Geological Survey published an article in the 80s saying that areas around Mexico City were inhabited 250,000 years ago. Right. Now, the reason that was rejected is very clear. It's because it according to North American archaeologists, that cannot be true. Therefore, it is not true. That's even the, even in the face of evidence of uh, DNA and they things say like that, that the evidence is simply not not correct that somebody's yeah. misinterpreting it. Uh, you and they say, oh, show me a body from 250,000 years ago. Well, you can't. You do the yeah. the ev- the things that have been done in South America are the same things done everywhere else. You dig, you find human tools, you find yeah. animals that were butchered by by human tools, and that's how you associate sites with humans. You find fire hearths, and all those things were yeah. found at these South American sites. Right. Let's move on for a minute. Uh, Greg, you are, I consider you one of the top minds behind the mound builders of uh, North America. You have a, the 
the book, the Encyclopedia Britannica of Mounds. But you actually found very, very early uh, mounds in Bolivia that are dated 8,400 B.C., uh, which does, does that parallel uh, mounds in the United States area or is that actually older? That's much older. That South is America has is probably going to have hundreds of mounds dating to eight to nine thousand BC. North America, okay. the oldest mound known in North America, is a small midden mound, uh, which is a mound, and, and it actually had uh, human remains in it. But that was okay. at that was near uh, the. Uh, Louisiana State University near Baton Rouge, uh, and it no longer exists, but it was dated to approximately 4,400 B.C. So South American mounds were at least 4,000 years older, but probably uh, since they've only dated a few in this Bolivia area uh, to 8,400 B.C., it's going to be older. We're probably going to find the oldest mounds there go back to 10,000 B.C. So is it your guess guess that there was a migration from South America into North America by these – so the technology was brought from the south? Well, it's kind of complicated, yes. Uh, The the most interesting thing is – and I've actually had people ask me questions – uh, that were really very good questions about it. It's like, well, why why did the South Americans build those gigantic stone megalithic structures and giant stone pyramids? Why did they do that? And as compared to the North American Indians who made mainly the earthen So uh, South America, of course, has these massive megalithic stone structures. North America does not. Uh, And I've had people say, well, why didn't the North Americans build that? And my answer is always simple. It is they didn't see the need. They weren't driven by the same ideology or religious belief that was going on to the south. Uh, They had a very different type of political system and ideology than than in the south. And actually, South American genetics uh, is is much more homogenous than the North American genetics. North Americans uh, are much more similar to each other than they were in South America. Okay. Somebody also asked me recently, he said, well, if they were so smart, because they, they knew a lot about geology. Some of the geometric earthworks are incredible. But somebody was asked me a question on the radio uh, it was actually it was a good question, but it was said in a in a kind of a nasty way. Well, if if they were so smart, why didn't they ever invent the wheel? So <laughs> my answer to that is twofold. One is in South America, they did have wheels. That is very well known. There have been a lot of yeah. toys that have been recovered that had wheels on them. Yeah. Uh, whether, and I don't think you make stone wheels anyway, and wooden wheels wouldn't have lasted. But in North America, yeah. they had. Uh, such a different ideology and belief system, they saw no need to have a wheel. They didn't move a lot of crap around like we do today. They weren't hoarders like we are today. When they traveled, yes, they, they, in the, before 10,000 BC, they did ride horses. Now, after all the horses were killed off, they had to wait to the Spanish, but they didn't they didn't carry as much stuff as we do today. They were hunter gatherers and they didn't see the need for the wheel. But they did things that these people that ask these questions couldn't do. For example, go outside and lay out the the 16 year cycle of the moon. 
from one so I can stand in one place and you can show me all the movements of the moon through its 16 year cycle. Try to do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they people can't do it's actually 18.61 years. Um, people can't do that or predict an eclipse for me. They could predict eclipses from these mound sites. Yet the average wow. person could not possibly predict an eclipse today. Okay, so so Greg, let me ask you this. So if if the mounds were being built in Bolivia and parts of Peru, uh, what happens when they get into Central America, like uh, Mexico, where we see uh, uh, more pyramid culture, and then all of a sudden we get back into the mounds of uh, which are earthen mounds in uh, present day United States? It's like it's like it's like they forgot the earthen mounds and got into the to the uh, stone mounds different, or something. Different cultures. Think about a leader who wants to, in, in North America, whoever the leaders were in the culture, they simply wanted to build a high place okay. from which their structure was. But in South America, it was a show of power. It was a it was a huge show of the leaders and the elites power over everyone else. And in South America, it is true that uh, in Central America in particular, they used to roll the heads of the victims down the steps of the pyramids Mm -hmm. and they would be covered by blood. So it, it was a different culture that was driving that different belief system. Whatever was going on in South America, they had many, many wars, massive wars between areas, uh, and they took many captives and they sacrificed captives. Actually, some of the first uh, mitochondrial DNA research I got interested in was in the Moche pyramids in Peru. And I wound up talking to the head researcher of it because he had found a whole a a, a slew, a large number of mitochondrial DNAs that were totally unknown when he did it. Now, today, somebody might say, oh, it's alien DNA because it doesn't match any human DNA. Today, today you'll have people say that, oh, we found alien DNA. And what they're talking about is they found a type of mitochondrial DNA that doesn't match any of those known. But the geneticists will tell you, if you go to mitochondrial DNA geneticists who specialize in it, they will tell you it is simply an extinct version of mitochondrial DNA. And that means the last woman who carried that that version of mitochondria simply died without having children, or she didn't have any females. So, Greg, in your book, uh, you get into specifics uh, about the giants uh, that are noted by early explorers. And in part of the book, you describe Magellan, uh, who was in South America in 1520, as encountering people that were as big as nine feet tall. That's a big human being. So, yes. so talk a little bit about where these giants went, uh, because you actually chronicle uh, evidence of giants in the present day United States, which are the mound builders. But w- what did Magellan find in this part of the world? Well, Magellan was the first to spend time in Patagonia, uh, which is in extreme South America, 
Uh, and it's also uh, there's an, a large triangular island called Tierra del Fuego. And, of course, Tierra the Magellan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Magellan Straits are named after him. So he was trying to find a way to Asia around the Americas. Uh, but he, when he got there, they encountered bad weather and they had to winter there. And, yes, they encountered um, groups of people. Uh, their warriors were nine, in some cases, 10 feet tall. Magellan was the first. Magellan actually, they knew nobody would believe it, so they captured two of these giants. They called them giants, and they tied them up and put them on the boat, and they were going to take them back to Europe. And on the way, both of those giants got sick and died, Hmm. and they tried to keep them for a while but realized they couldn't, so they tossed their remains off board. And so that began this series of sea captains and very well-known people. Uh, Lord Byron was one, for example, who went there and encountered giants. And many of the sea captains actually measured these people. The final person that went there – uh, who was important in it was the father of evolution. All right. We all know who that was, right? Yeah, Mr. Darwin. Yeah. Charles Darwin went there. And Darwin, when he visited, he saw a few that were remaining who were over six feet tall, six, five, six, six. But there was there was less than a handful Because from the 1500s to the time Darwin was there in the middle of the 1800s, a war of extermination had gone on to get rid of these people, to get rid of every man, woman, and child that was a member of the Ona and Tolucci tribe, both of which were supposedly these very large people. There are so many stories of them, and skeptics deny everyone. They say they're all exaggerations. They're all exaggerations. But it is true that from the beginning, they were all said to be roughly nine feet tall, was, were the tallest. Mm-hmm. And then the next explorers went in and said they were roughly eight feet tall. Then it went to seven and a half or so. And then by the time Darwin got there, Darwin was greatly up, upset by seeing these people being slaughtered. He actually saw some of the battles take place. Why would they try to exterminate or, or commit Because these genocide? people were... They were fiercely opposing all these Europeans coming in. They were using, oh. they were doing two things. Number one, they realized that Patagonia was good sheep herding country. But number two, there was gold there. As soon as gold oh. was discovered, they came in and they started exterminating them. And obviously, the biggest, the biggest natives were warriors, and they were the ones you would get rid of first. Yeah. Uh, by the time the Smithsonian went in, uh, there were two living members of the Ona tribe, which are the tallest ones. Uh, And actually, uh, skeletal remains said to be 10 feet tall uh, were recovered in the 1700s by a sea captain who who ship got marooned there for a while. So it's a lot. There's just so many stories of it. But skeptics deny every single one. They say it's all nonsense that you can't believe. They always exaggerated. So uh, a branch of these uh, giants either uh, migrated to present-day United States and – because we have uh, reports uh, in a number of different people's books that are written about giants of mounds being burials for giants uh, as tall as nine-plus feet uh, all all over the the eastern seaboard, but also in the mid-United States – 
is that your feeling that the, these are the the descendants of South American giants, or would they have come from somewhere else? Well, I think these the ones in North America, I believe, were from the Salutrians coming over. But I think the Salutrians carried this Denisovan Neanderthal hybrid type of DNA, which was also from South America. The South American people came over from. It, it's very clear. They they are this haplogroup B. They came over from the South Pacific area and they were just they were different. They had similar DNA in that it was part Denisovan uh, and part Neanderthal. But I think the ones in North America. Now, I, I will say this. I in the book, I go through a series of excavations done by mainstream archaeologists, not newspaper reports, mm-hmm where they dug into mounds and they consistently found a number of skeletons, all of which are from seven feet up. Now, none were above eight feet that they, well, I will take that back. Um, 2009 report in the Arkansas archaeologist, a professor who was at Memphis State University when I was a student there, uh, wrote an article about a site in Arkansas called Chickasaba. And it's a mound that it had many large skeletons. He and a colleague, another archaeologist, went to uh, the Chicago Field Museum and they examined the only remains of a skeleton uh, giant that had been removed from Chickasaba back in the mid 1900s. And they calculated that it was uh, eight feet, six inches tall. So that's the largest one I've ever heard of. But the Smithsonian Mm -hmm. pulled 17 of them out in the 1800s during their mound survey project. And then modern archaeologists up until about 1969 or so uh, excavated another 10 or 12 that were over seven feet tall from mounds, all under very controlled conditions. And the people who were in the mounds, Native Americans mainly cremated the dead. Yeah. And those that were in the mounds are generally the elite, the leaders, the shaman, and almost all these seven footers in American mounds were pulled out of very specific types of mounds known as Adena. And almost all of them were identified by the archaeologists as being shaman. They ah, were the okay. religious leaders. And a lot of them had certain artifacts with them. And I think that those that was a hereditary group of people who probably had links back to Clovis and had simply been passed along through generations. They simply, their hereditary group simply survived all the way from Clovis. Wow. Uh, They became the leaders and they Mm -hmm. became the leaders because they had very specific information about life and death and this path of souls. What happens to the soul after death? And both Andrew and I believe that is how they controlled the populace and convinced them to build these gigantic mounds and the earthworks. And they convinced them in South America and Central America to build the pyramids and these gigantic megalithic structures they built. Would you it say had, that yeah. um, the mound cities that you've discovered – I, I haven't asked you this before, uh, Greg, but would you say it, that it's the, the old parable uh, – uh, what uh, what above what is above is so below. Did these mounds kind of line up to certain star systems? Uh, I know they're they're an astronomically aligned to certain planets and things, but would you say they're 
uh, a city would be aligned to a, a constellation of some kind? Well, and what I did at the very end of the book, the last chapter, I took the path of souls idea, which is the journey of the dead soul back to the stars or the really it's not just to the stars. The stars were the first leg of the journey. Mm -hmm. But all that was discovered in the around 2005 or so. It was totally laid out by anthropologists and ethnographers. And the natives believed, and this this appears to be almost universal in ancient times, they believed that the soul made a journey. And the journey was made in the winter at the solstice and that the soul leaped to a specific spot in the sky, a slit in the sky called an ogee. That's spelled Mm O-G-E-E. And that ogee was Messier 42, which is a nebula that is just below in the western sky. It's just below the three belt stars of Orion. It's a fuzzy nebula. And the the Maya called it Shilbaba, hmm. and a lot of their sites were aligned to it. But that was the first stage. So the soul jumped to that. It then went under the earth because it jumped to Shilbaba or Orion's nebula just before the sun came up. And then it appeared on the eastern horizon the next night. And so it made a journey through the underworld during the day. The next night, it then let it took a hop to the Milky Way and it moved to the north, eventually reaching the star uh, Deneb in the Cygnus constellation. Mm. So that is the basis of it. And if you go and you look at a lot of American mound sites and you look at sites in Europe and, and really in Asia, what you will find is. If you use the modern star computer programs, you will see that from mound to mound or from, say, stone to stone, you can you can see and you can calculate the exact sunset on the winter solstice, which is when this thing took place. So generally a two week time period, a two month time period. Then you can make an alignment to the setting of Orion and Orion's uh, nebula, there's always a way to cite that. And you can always cite the setting of the star Deneb at these sites. And I just used that. That's all I did. I went to the simplest sites first mm-hmm. that had very few alignments. You can go to complex sites that have maybe 50 mounds, and you can find so many alignments, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, they didn't know what time of year to look at. It's like, when do you look for these alignments? So this path of souls idea gave us the ability to take a specific time of the year and look for alignments to very specific stars. And it came up again and again. So that, again, that is how we think that the ancient rulers and the elite controlled the populace. They had the power of life and death. What happened to your loved ones? They also had the power of reincarnation because that was built into this whole schema, too. Uh, But that's that gets pretty deep. Wow. Let's finish up with uh, a final thought on these denificens um, and uh, how their DNA is spread. Now, do, do you think that uh, modern Homo sapiens have a bit of uh, denificent in them? Or oh, absolutely. That, so, that's already that's been proven. Uh, okay. Native Americans have a pretty fair amount in them. Modern living Native Americans carry quite a bit Denisovan DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it is in the South Pacific. 
and uh, in living people in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And then it's found scattered around in various European places, too. Uh, And earlier, uh, really off the air, we had talked about why does Andrew believe that they were physically very large and robust people? Mm -hmm. It is because there is a real medical correlation between tooth size and body size. Now, correlation is not causation, which means a big tooth doesn't make a large body. But a big tooth is usually found in association with larger body size. And all of the teeth that have been found so far and all of the skeletal remains that have been found so far point to these people being physically very large, much larger, Mm -hmm. say, than the Neanderthals, who were also around when the Denisovans were around. And they started Mm -hmm. around 700,000 years ago. So we're talking about a long time ago. What's an an attribute of these people, do you think? Is there a higher higher brain function? I mean, when when we say we have this this attribute, uh, this this, uh, level, what would you guess at one of the higher functions that they contribute to our makeup? Well, one of the Andrew believes that they had certain autistic abilities, which comes from the DNA research on the Denisovan. You're talking about autism, which we don't consider a, a, a very good thing today. But maybe uh, it, it's not a very good thing because you can't live what's considered a normal life. But autistic yeah. people can sometimes sit down at a piano and never played before and suddenly play a concerto. Yeah. They can sometimes grab hold of a violin and play it. They can do incredible things with mathematics, which are just mm-hmm. unreal. Mm-hmm. So uh, they do have these two autistic genes that they found in the Denisovan DNA. But they have found, and this, this is mainstream research has found, that they tailored clothing. That is known for certain. And they also used what looked like high-speed drills. Now, we're not talking about electric drills, but they were able to make jewelry using very high-speed oh, right. yeah. drill technology. And when I say the word technology, I don't know how they did it, uh, but they did it. They also yeah. were able to polish uh, emeralds and stones, and they've made some incredible jewelry that they found. Mm-hmm. And it, it – It turned everything upside down. We've always looked at the Neanderthals and we've looked at these early groups as being people who did not have much ability, like they were brutes. They were hunter gatherers. They didn't wear clothing. They would wear a skin or something, but that was it. They were more like us than we ever believed. That's what it boils down to. Human beings have been smart like us and as smart as us for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the Denisovans were probably just as smart. So one thing I would challenge one of your a listener who thinks, oh, they're not as smart as me. OK, get rid of all of your modern devices. Go out into the desert somewhere or the woods and then make everything. Make mm-hmm. your own knives, make your own computer, make your own phone, make your own electricity without using anything. Start from scratch and build it and see how long it takes you. Wow. Who Fantastic. can do it? Um, yeah. Nobody. Yes. We're, we are haughty because we have this technology in front of us that we didn't build and we couldn't do it ourselves anyway. It is the result of Thousands and thousands of of years of knowledge and research building on top of each other. And these people started it all. Yeah. Greg, we could talk forever about this. This is fascinating. Your 
contributions to this book, uh, Denifson Origins, is fantastic. It's a a really in-depth look at the, the origins of modern humans in many ways, and also, you know, the the, the, the rampant racism that we face here in uh, the United States with our own scientists. And, and uh, it's so funny. I travel a lot to Mexico, and when I go to the museums in Mexico, I see so many anomalous featured in, in uh, features in their figurines and their pottery that show a really advanced uh, culture. We don't see the same thing in American universe uh, American museums because I think they edit it out. <laughs> yes, they do. They're very cautious to do that. Yeah. Uh, they have they have they're sanit they've sanitized, sanitized everything. Sanitized it. Yes. And you will you can go on Wikipedia is sanitized by them also. There's actually a very specific group that does it, WikiSkeptics. If you look them up, you can yeah. see their yeah. all of their information. Uh, but they have even gotten rid of all of these Smithsonian's research showing that a you know like a seven foot skeleton was removed from this site yeah uh, they will have the site information but they won't mention the large skeletons ever and i don't think i think it has to do believe it or not with the bible and creationism it's a long involved story there's but there's always I think, been a hint about that yeah the, yeah the, you know the earth was created in five thousand years well any anything that supports the idea that there were giants in the earth they think supports the bible and i don't think the wiki skeptics can handle that and they're afraid creationists will jump on it uh -huh. i'm not a creationist but i do believe that there were very large people in the ancient past wow uh, the book, Denificent Origins, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants of Ancient America. Graham Hancock says, a missing chapter in our knowledge of the emergence of civilization. That's his endorsement. Uh, my guest today has been Dr. Greg Little, and this is co-written by Andrew Collins. The book just came out in September and is available on Amazon. What a heck of a... Uh, a meaty, solid look at our past. And, hey, Greg, great to talk with you, and this is a real fun book. Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Greg's always uh, fun to interview. I have had him on the show before uh, to discuss a book he wrote called The Illustrated Encyclopedia of American Indian Mounds and Earthworks, and it is an encyclopedia. It really is. It's uh, Many hundreds of pages. It has really excellent photographs, graphics, and explanations. If you live close to a mound or one of these uh, native earthworks, you should get it because it, he'll tell you all the details, how it's aligned, what the purpose they believe was for these different mounds and earthworks. And it's the authorita authoritative guide. It really is. No one else in anthropology or archaeology has done work like this, and uh, we have huge questions about ancient America. Uh, who were these uh, early settlers before the native people were here, before the Indians, and uh, where did they come from? What was their purpose? What was their goal? So always great to have Greg on the program. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, I am going to be in Egypt until... The week of the 14th, so we will be missing a show. We'll pick it up again on the 19th, Saturday the 19th, with a uh, program on the secret space program that President Trump has just signed into effect. We have uh, an expert, uh, and we will talk about 
exactly what that means for us and what we can look at in the future. Also, don't forget to check out Destiny. The first program uh, was just uh, released uh, on Wednesday, and uh, it's a chance to hear from Dr. Dean Radin, uh, who is an expert on uh, parapsychology, what we can predict in the future. We also have a regular segment with uh, with Dr. Pepper Hernandez, who is an expert on cannabis, and we're going to have regular segments on cannabis and sexuality, uh, other techniques that you can use to kind of enhance your your body, mind, and spirit. So check that out. Hey, I want to thank uh, Jen Deo uh, for her portion of the show, Bruce Fenton, uh, my guest today, Dr. Greg Little, and as always, the associate producer, without her help, none of this would get done, Aaron Herman. Thank you, Aaron. All right, that's it, and we will pick it up later. Have a good uh, week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.